You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McLenathan. It's summertime, Wade, and it's not just any summertime. It's the summer before a presidential election, so tis the season for the two movies we're reviewing this week. Kevin, I predict that we're going to need a bigger podcast. Wade, did I ever tell you about the time when I was stranded in the middle of the Pacific Ocean with a bunch of podcast buddies and some sharks kept picking us off one by one? So were you actually on board the USS Indianapolis or was that the USS Steven Spielberg? Uh, The second one. It was the second one. Listeners, today we have a very special episode. First up, we're going to be reviewing the Jon Stewart satire, Irresistible. And then we're going to be celebrating the 45th anniversary of Steven Spielberg's landmark shark attack film, Jaws. Kevin, did did I already say that we're going to need a bigger podcast joke? You did, but we can reuse it. It's totally fine. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 253 of Seeing and Believing. We can't win unless it turns out that this town isn't the Mayberry everybody thinks it is. We're the good guys, right? Yeah, we're the good guys. When they go low... We go high. Unless we also need to go low, apparently. (laughs) Only to keep those who would go lower out of power. So when they go low, we go higher incrementally in relation to how low they went. Regrettably, yes. When they go low, we go almost as low, but we feel worse doing it. Listeners, that is a clip from Jon Stewart's Irresistible. We're going to jump into our review of that film here in a moment on episode 253 of Seeing and Believing. Kevin, we did announce it. We're going to be talking about Jaws. It's the 45th anniversary, and it's always a good time, in my opinion, to talk about Jaws. <laughs> I I would agree. I You know, I actually watched... Uh, the movie in preparation for this podcast. It wasn't my first time seeing it, but it was my wife's first time watching it. Oh. And uh, let's let's just say that uh, for her at least, it was it was pretty effective, <laughs> even all these years <laughs> later. So you are not going to go to any of the Great Lakes anytime soon. I I guess. Well, you know, sharks generally don't go into freshwater bodies. I think there's only. Uh, I think there's only one large species of shark that goes into freshwater and they tend not to be up in the Great Lakes region. Mm. So, you know, I think we're going to be okay. Okay. I didn't know just psychologically, could (laughs) she get in the water? I, I remember watching Jaws as a kid and, uh, it, it left its mark, uh, left its teeth marks in me. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it, it definitely did for me too. Well, listeners, that review is coming up in the second half of the show. You don't want to miss it. This week's episode, however, begins with a look at the current state of politics in Jon Stewart's Irresistible, starring Steve Carell, Chris Cooper, Rose Byrne, and Mackenzie Davis. Irresistible follows a Democrat strategist as he helps a retired veteran run for mayor in a small, conservative Wisconsin town. Kevin, this is the second politically charged Steve Carell property we've discussed this month. We were both mostly thumbs down on Netflix's Space Force. Now, in your opinion, does Irresistible fare any better as either a political statement or simply just a piece of entertainment? 
<laughs> I, I'm sad to say that I think Steve Carell is batting zero for two on his political oh, no. satires this year, which is which is a bummer. I was looking forward to Irresistible. I you know I enjoyed the John Stewart era of the Daily Show. I liked Steve Carell quite a bit, and you know their their paths actually coincided for a while uh, on that show. So I was really looking forward to them kind of reteaming again and uh, you know seeing what they could do with this. And I'll give it this, at least since you brought up Space Force. I do give Irresistible some credit for having a pretty coherent point of view on the subject that's trying to satirize. I think one of the problems I had with Space Force was it didn't really seem like it knew what it wanted to say exactly about the politics and the systems that it was satirizing, and that hurt it quite a bit. Irresistible doesn't have that problem. Uh, it definitely knows what it wants to say. I think my problem with it, Wade, and I'm curious to know your thoughts, is that, I don't know, it, it felt a little bit like Jon Stewart making an after-school special about the corrupting influence of money in politics. It's very earnest, um, and it's very it's a very laudable bit of subject matter to tackle, but man, it just, it feels pretty amateurish to me in, in just the directing and the general directions that goes in the writing. It's just, I, I was a little bit disappointed with it. Well, it, it, it certainly isn't all that cinematic. It, it feels like a television show at times and, and, and sometimes even a, a weak television show. But I, I kind of liked it. Okay. So it's, it's not good but it's it's not bad i i enjoyed the picture more than i didn't enjoy the picture perhaps it's because it is an earnest film kevin this is not a movie that necessarily says okay i want to i want to examine the right and i want to examine the left and see where they come up uh short or where they excel instead this is a film with a singular focus and it's about campaigning. It's about the way that we elect officials and the way that we raise funds for officials. And this is something that Jon Stewart has been passionate about throughout his career and uh, when he did host the, The Daily Show. And I appreciate that. I thought the movie was was kind of funny. I, actually, there were some parts that, that were real funny. And I liked a number of the characters so I, I actually left the movie expecting to be disappointed and was actually kind of impressed. Now, it is amateurish in some ways, um, but I, yeah, I, I think I've got to give it, I've got to give it some, some accolades because on some levels it, it does work actually pretty well. Yeah, I, I don't know. I guess I didn't know that I found enough of it really developed enough to for for the humor to really reach the heights that I really wanted it to. There are so many jokes in here that seem like kind of really great sketch ideas. Like there's there's a bit where uh uh the characters are watching CNN and the CNN uh anchor says, "Now let's go to our duo decahedron commenter panel and see what they have to say." And it cuts to, you know, one of these screen one of these split screens where there are all these pundits and you know normally on cable news there's like three maybe four at the most and in this 
really exaggerated version, there's like 12 of them on screen or something. They're all talking at the same time, which is kind of, that's an amusing idea, but Stuart doesn't really evolve that at all. It's sort of like, wouldn't it be funny if we took this element of cable news and exaggerated it slightly? And the answer to that question is, yes, it would be funny, but what are you going to do with it once you actually get that idea on screen? And the answer to that is nothing. Or at least that's that's kind of what I saw in this film over and over where there are a lot of interesting bits that don't really get flushed out enough for the humor to really feel like it's it's amounting to anything. It's it sound it feels to me like a kind of a collection of wouldn't it be funny if bits that there was no writer's room to really flush them out and put put meat on those bones and really make the the comedy incisive. I don't know. I I thought that it it goes after what it wants to go after. And so the premise is there is this election and Steve Carell wants to help Chris Cooper's character run for mayor of a of a small Wisconsin town and it just mushrooms from there and the news media is all over this one race and people are flooding to this town to participate in this race and money is coming in from all of these sources and it becomes symbolic in a way and so when we get some of these these uh, news reports uh they're exaggerated uh, to the point that i i think they they actually make a number of different statements so there's one scene that i thought was pretty funny where uh rose burns character is on one side of the screen being interviewed by a number of panels via satellite uh, steve carell is on another side of the screen and they're both kind of talking and then steve carell walks out of his camera to where she's standing and walks into her camera shot and they're they're essentially shooting on the same street and it's funny because it gives us a glimpse into how image matters and how image can be manipulated to separate people or to even separate certain ideologies or certain beliefs. There is another instance, I believe it happens in the same scene, where Rose Byrne's character just straight up lies and she's trying to help the republican candidate uh she she just lies and oh wow that's you know that's wild and then the show ends and she's like oh i don't know why i did that but you get the sense that it it doesn't really matter that she lied because people aren't going to necessarily check up on it and if they did it wouldn't really mean that much outside of this moment this moment is what matters because we take so much with uh, uh, without checking up on it or doing the background. And even when the truth comes out, it, it people just they just don't change their minds. And so when Stewart is adding those little elements to this film, I think it does give you an idea of how the political ball game is played. Now, as I mentioned, he doesn't really go into uh, many of the issues surrounding these two camps, the left and the right. Uh, instead, he points out that, sure, there, there are sincere people 
uh, on both sides. And I think some people are going to really like that message. Some people are going to really hate that message. But the system uh, can be manipulated to create conflicts and and to to really uh, control certain situations from afar. So I think he does a fine job of kind of emphasizing those points. Now, does he always do that with his editing and shot selection? No, there really isn't. There really aren't very many good shots here that are memorable shots, I, sh- I should say, where we, we say, oh, yeah, that's really you know symbolic of kind of what's going on. Uh, but it might just be that, that Stewart doesn't have the tools that he needs to pull off some sort of grand cinematic vision. And I, I'd love to see him develop that in, in future films. I saw part of his previous movie, Rosewater, and it it was lacking in that same regard. So I, I'd like to see him make some development. Uh, he didn't do it with this film, but hopefully he'll do it in the future. Yeah, you put your finger on what was one of the uh, weaknesses of the film for me, which is that there are kind of these these interesting ideas in the the screenplay that, that Stuart wrote himself um, that could have been developed not just in terms of, you know, like the characters stating things at the camera or them being delved into more through dialogue, but just uh, through visuals, he could have played a lot more with that, that kind of motif of how these political strategists are essentially trying to warp reality around their candidates or to create a certain perspective that makes their candidate look good and the opposing candidate look like Satan himself. And that's something that Stuart maybe could have played with a little bit more just by using his uh, directing to kind of suggest the idea more of this mediated reality. That sequence you talked about where uh, Carell and Byrne are both giving the this opposing talking head interview with uh, an MSNBC uh, anchor, and they're just standing essentially right next to each other. And so when Carell walks over to confront Byrne, it's kind of a breaking of the fourth wall and exposes it for the artifice it is. That's something that Stewart could have developed more throughout the film rather than it feeling like a kind of a one-off gag and maybe turned it into more of a motif. And I think that's maybe what I really found lacking in this film is there's not really a whole lot beyond the the dialogue that really engages me with this picture. The the cinematography is pretty flat. The the editing is very conventional and the characters themselves just the performances there's not other than chris cooper's performance as the uh retired veteran who Carell kind of wants to make the cinderella of politics i don't really get a whole lot out of these performances that is suggestive that any of these characters are anything more than kind of a an a, a conglomeration of ideas like Carell's character kind of represents the out-of-touch uh, democratic elites. Rose Byrne's character represents these absolutely venal uh, Republican strategists who will lie to to no certain end but don't really care about the truth. Those are all just ideas wrapped in flesh, and I don't see Stewart's directing really doing a whole lot to enliven it and make it feel timely. Like I can't imagine uh, a whole lot of people 
watching this 10 years from now and feeling like it speaks to speaks to their present context. It, it feels a lot more like a time capsule. And I think that that's, that's unfortunate. Well, I mean, it, it does in a way. I wonder if we'll look back on this movie and, and think, oh, it has, it has a little more substance than the technical aspects or the form of it. Uh, reveal upon first viewing because it does say something about fundraising and the way that we use demographics to slice up towns and individuals to get votes. And as this is kind of happening, as experts are rolling into town, we get the sense that all of this just creates this, this mass around any type of message and any type of mission. And, and instead, it's all about appealing to certain people. It's all about finding the right algorithm to reach these individuals without alienating those individuals. And as I mentioned, I, I think the the editing needs some work. Stuart, he... He chooses a couple scenes to experiment. There's there's one where Carell is is being sarcastic, and we just kind of get him. We get the camera cutting as he moves across the room and just goes on and on with this joke. And it just it those experiments they don't work, and the rest is just kind of kind of bland. But overall, I I think it's a mostly funny picture and. It is, it is sort of fascinating to see. And like I said, I, I think people are going to react uh, against this maybe in one or two ways. But to see individuals in this conservative town who are misguided in many ways but are not the spawn of, of Satan and to see individuals on the other side working in that that same direction and to, to really just kind of revel in the puppet masters behind the scenes and their influence on all the characters in this film it it is it is it is fascinating to me that this approach is taken especially in this polarizing time and i appreciate some of the humanity that stewart gives these small town individuals I love, as you said, I love Chris Cooper's performance here. I think he does so well. I think the townspeople are really funny. And this is all sort of exaggerated, right? So some of the villains are uh, more outwardly evil uh, than you would expect in real life. And uh, the townspeople are probably a lot closer uh, than most small town individuals uh, but he's trying to create a comedy and it's not exactly realistic and i i think for the most part it's uh i don't know it's an enjoyable watch now maybe a, a political film shouldn't be all that enjoyable i'm not sure maybe it shouldn't have the ending that it has but it did feel kind of refreshing to me if i'm being honest yeah uh, i i mean this is a film that's about it's basically pulling back the curtain 
on The Wizard of Oz, right? Like Stuart is really trying to go behind the scenes of, you know, all the all the pomp of politics and really look at, okay, well, like what, you know, what's, how does the sausage get made? And what kind of artifice is involved in in making that sausage? So I guess I'm making, mixing my metaphors a little bit, but it's no accident that the first shots that we see in this film are of kind of this theatrical backdrop being erected uh, for uh, two, dem- two uh, political consultants to essentially spin the results of a political debate. We see, you know, some some grips putting up this this black backdrop. We see microphones being get gotten ready. We see lights going on, and Stewart's obviously uh, making the point that there is a lot of artifice. It's, it is a form of theater. Um, I think the, the problem for me is that the, the, uh, the, the real people, I guess, like the, what Stuart portrays as genuine and unmediated and not theatrical, I, I still feel like there's a lot of artifice to it. For, I, I don't, for me, the, uh, the small town didn't feel there wasn't a whole lot of specificity to these these townspeople. They they just kind of feel like they're there to be to again to represent Heartland America, which is literally a phrase that uh, is uh, a title card uh, early on in the film. And Stewart obviously intends that to be tongue in cheek, but watching the film, it kind of feels like. That is the version of America that he's portraying through these townspeople. He doesn't really do very much to make them feel like real people. They're just sort of like they're down on their luck, small town Wisconsin people. And Carell and Byrne are kind of fighting over them because they represent something. But I feel like Stuart is seeing them just as mere types himself. And I don't know. That's a problem. I do want to talk about uh, one interesting moment though which kind of ties into this whole idea of of artifice and uh the true self because there's an interesting scene where uh Carell's consultant meets up with kind of the the a team of the technological side of things he's got kind of this back room full of data miners and social media uh social media people <laughs> and um pollsters and he's talking to them about, you know, how do we squeeze more votes out of this populace? Like, how do we get to know what we're looking at? Like, what's the lay of the land? And there's a somebody who's kind of a data scientist, played by Natasha Lyon, and she's talking about the Google searches and the data mining that she's able to do on the people of the town. She says, your digital footprint is your true self. Polls will tell you if people say they believe in God, I can tell you if God is in their hearts, <laughs> which is is a pretty good line. And I, I found that interesting to, to think about. I don't think that the movie really follows that uh, up in any, in any meaningful way, but I did enjoy the hint that Stuart inserts into this film of, well, what, what, who, what is the real self? What is the true self? Because we find out... Uh, later on in the film that maybe Carell and Byrne aren't the only people who are kind of building facades and, and presenting a, a false vision of reality. So that was something that I liked 
that the film played with and just would have liked to have seen developed more. No, I, I think so too. I mean, anytime you can explore the the way that Christianity reacts with not just politics, because Christianity is it's always been political. Uh, think about the implications of being a Christian in in Rome, but the way that our politics affects how we elect officials and how we understand the flourishing of society. And I I love that scene. It's it's a funny scene, but what makes someone a a follower of of Christ? And we get some talk here of, you know, do they go to church? Or are they just saying that just to say that? And to think about the way our country has shifted over the years from being more so Christian in name to people almost being a little more honest about not having faith, becoming the quote-unquote nuns, and how that might affect the political process. And also, people who categorize themselves as Christians and uh, the way that they vote and how that's used to define certain aspects of faith uh, versus, I don't know, the the way a person is in their everyday life. And I, I think that is, uh, that's, that's a very good point. I would love to see that developed. I, I think too with that and with facades and with these townspeople, the ending explains a lot. And it, I think it does say something about the roles that people choose to play as well as our perception of those roles. There are a couple of characters at the end, and we don't really think they're all that refined, I guess. And they start talking about uh, Neil Postman. And it's a really funny way of saying that sometimes there's just kind of so much going on beneath the surface that we don't realize. And that can even go for people who categorize themselves as, as Christians. So this, this isn't a strong film, uh, but it's one that ultimately I, I, I kind of liked and uh, I'm glad, I'm glad that it exists and I'm glad that I can, you know, watch it now before everything kind of starts getting crazy uh, with the election <laughs> over the next couple of months. Yeah, I didn't like this film nearly as much as you, but I will probably become very nostalgic for it <laughs> once the uh, presidential election season kicks up in earnest. Listeners, that is our review of John Stewart's Irresistible. If you've had a chance to see this film, it's being released this weekend. We would love to hear your thoughts about it. Go ahead and send those thoughts to our Twitter at cbelievepod or shoot us an email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Don't go anywhere. We're about to head into danger with our retro review of Steven Spielberg's Jaws. Don't go anywhere. Listeners, we want to take a quick moment and thank you 
for supporting us in the various ways that you do support us. You can rate and review our podcast on iTunes, also on Spotify, wherever you get your podcast episodes. Plus, many of you have chosen to support us via our Patreon campaign, and that is much appreciated, especially during this time. We have a number of different donation levels, and with each of those levels comes various perks. One of our favorite levels, as we say each week, is the what can you buy for $5 level. Kevin, I wanted to ask you that question. What can you buy for five bucks? Five bucks would get you a small submersible watercraft a submarine, and I don't know. I don't know if I can recommend this $5 purchase for our listeners because the old adage, you get what you pay for, isn't something that you really want to test out when you're 20,000 leagues under the sea, so to speak. Mm. So yeah, uh, I'm I'm not so sure about it, but hey, you know, if you always wanted a submarine, could get one for five bucks, why not? Hey, you can, you can get one. As you said, we, we don't recommend it, but what's the worst that could happen, right? So, <laughs> what truly, what is the worst that could happen in a $5 submarine? <laughs> Listeners, hop on over to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast to check out our Patreon campaign. Once again, we appreciate all of you who have helped us over the years. Yeah, $5 a month will also uh, be enough to get you a membership to Christ and Pop Culture, which doesn't just support our podcast. It supports all the podcasts in the Christ Pop Culture podcast network. And Wade, I'm really excited this week because we have a new addition to that network. It's uh, it's really cool. Uh, ben Fort is a longtime member himself, and he has a new podcast. So he's moving from the member side to a member of the family, of the podcasting family side. He's got a new podcast about humor and ethics and faith called Funny Beliefs. The first episode just released this week, I believe. And uh, it's it's a really good one. Ben's a smart guy and a funny guy, so perfect host for this podcast. In this first episode, he talks about comedians and late night hosts that have increasingly been uh, kind of leaving off joking so much and actually sincerely commenting on current events and politics. And Ben uses this as an opportunity to explore what what is the relief of laughter? Is that enough for a hurting world? Have we been asking too little of comedians, or are we now asking too much? So it's a really interesting episode, lots of cool stuff in there. So if our listeners are looking for more podcasts to check out, then Funny Beliefs is definitely should definitely be their jam. Yeah, I haven't listened to it yet, but it's on my queue. And I, I'm going to try to get the first episode in maybe while I'm jogging tomorrow. So I'll, I'll, I'll come back with some thoughts, but it's from Ben. So it's, it's going to be great. Yes, definitely. Finally, listeners just want to throw out a plug there that our listener poll is still live. You might remember us mentioning it on the last couple of episodes, but it is still live and waiting for your feedback. This is the poll, of course, that we're using to kind of help us decide where to go next with the show and which experiments have have been successful and should be followed up on. So definitely take a look at that. We've We've been tweeting it out on our Twitter account. 
We'll also provide a link in the show notes. So if you have five minutes, just hop on over to there and let us know what you think. Hey, Mike, I know you got a lot of problems downtown, but I've got a couple of problems at the house I wish you could take care of. One, I've got some cats parking in front of the house. I can't get down to the office, and that garbage truck next to the office has got to be moved. So what I need is a red zone. It's a simple thing you honey, can take care of. You've honey, would before. you come here a minute, okay? please? Do what you Everything's fine. Yeah, fine, it's fine. Listen, if the kids go in the water, it's really you. No. And they can, they can play out here on the beach. All right, let them go. It's cold. <laughs> we know all about you, Chief. You don't go in the water at all, do you? It's some bad hat, Harry. Well, grab your pool noodles and water wings because it's now safe to go back in the water. Don't worry if you hear some ominous intermittent bass strings in the background right now. That's just the sound of the second segment of our show gliding noiselessly towards you. It's our retro review of Jaws, Wade. <laughs> dun 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 Dunna dunna. <laughs> that was, was that a, was that supposed to be the the, oh, the base man. the baseline? It, it from was it was the supposed to be score? it was I, I did it too quick. I yeah, I'm not even gonna try again. I'm uh, John Williams, you can't emulate him. It just all sounds terrible. Yeah, well, you know, you know, maybe you can pass it off as like a dubstep remix of <laughs> the, the Williams yeah. score. Yeah, as a as I really do enjoy listening to dubstep remixes of classic film scores it's wonderful <laughs> well it beats getting eaten by a shark yeah <laughs> or or does it i i actually am not sure about the answer to that question we are going to be talking about jaws though almost exactly a week and 45 years ago steven spielberg's jaws made its theatrical debut and helped to change summer movie going forever Widely credited alongside Star Wars for kicking off the era of blockbuster summer movies, Spielberg's film about a killer shark terrorizing an idyllic seaside tourism spot needs almost no introduction. That's how ingrained in pop cultural consciousness it is. From John Williams' iconic score to Robert Shaw's grizzled turn as the unhinged Captain Quint, everybody knows Jaws. And because everybody knows it, it invites periodic reappraisals to see if a rewatch still has the same effect that it had ever since it dominated the film-going landscape 45 years ago. So, Wade, I guess that's a good place for our conversation to start. You uh, revisited this film with me just before this episode to see if it is still as good as its reputation suggests. So my question for you is, is it, is it as good as its <laughs> reputation suggests? Well, okay, so it depends on what reputation you're talking about. I, I think a lot of people look at this film and they see it as kind of this big action film that set off the blockbuster race, which it is. And you, you alluded to that. that. That's true. I think, though, that it's, it's better than just a monster movie. It is one of the one of the it's the I don't know if it's the apex of monster movies, but it's definitely up there. It's also just a well-made movie from top 
to bottom. This isn't just a film that hit the top of the box office. This is a movie that technically, uh, story-wise, however you want to put it, just every single aspect uh, excels I feel like on on nearly every level. I, I'm a big Steven Spielberg fan. This is one of my my favorites from him. It's definitely top five. So I'll, I'll gush about it. But it, people put this movie up there with one of the greats for a reason. And watching it again, I think I saw it maybe a year ago, year and a half ago. Watching it again, I I just I learned something new about the movie, I saw something new, and that's that's pretty special with a movie that I've seen as many times as I've seen Jaws. Oh, I'm I'm looking forward to to talking more about what those what those new things you noticed were. Uh, it's it was been a while for me since I'd seen Jaws. I think the last time I'd seen it was I don't know, probably a decade ago. So it it, wow. it was due for a rewatch. Okay, for me. yeah. And you know, I liked it then, and I think I might have liked it even more now. And I don't think I'm saying anything new when I point out that there's a lot of Hitchcock in this film, but it it for me on this viewing the the Hitchcock parallels really jumped out at me a lot more. Even the Williams score, the dun dun dun, you know, the gradual acceleration of the strings really made me think of Bernard Herrmann's scores for some Hitchcock films like Psycho. Just the the ability of Spielberg to create something that is is very smart and just immaculately crafted while also delivering the entertainment goods. That's something that Hitchcock was really well known for as well. And I think that that's you know just the beginning. This time, uh, I I was thinking about the scene where. Uh, Richard Dreyfuss's Hooper and Roy Shire's uh, police chief are uh, out on the water. They're in a boat and they're kind of going through the fog and they've got this flashlight and or this uh, spotlight rather. And they're they're sweeping it over the water and they're kind of looking around and they stop and they freeze. And you have that signature Spielberg shot of them looking in awe or in consternation or maybe a little bit of both just off screen at whatever their spotlight has illuminated. And there's something about that shot that made me think of how Hitchcock liked to play with voyeurism. You know, the, the, the act of looking at someone who doesn't know they're being watched is something that shows up in Hitchcock time and time again. This is not the same as that. It's almost like Hitchcock in a different key. Spielberg's characters are also watching something, but the, their reasons for being entranced by it and their attitudes toward it are just just a little bit different. And I think that's maybe why Jaws is kind of part of the canon of great uh, American uh, entertaining entertainments is that it ta- it knows its place in history and it takes it kind of stands on the shoulders of giants, but it's also it's complete it's completely own thing and I don't know I I had a really good time with this film. Yeah, and I I, I want to make this clear. Many people talk about this movie and they, they'll say, oh, the, sh- the shark wasn't working. The mechanical shark wasn't working. And it forced Steven Spielberg to get a little bit uh, creative with the use of the shark. And we don't get to see the shark as much as he wanted to. And, you know, that's why the movie's good. That affected the movie. Yes. But that's not the only reason why this movie is good. I think what stuck out to me 
uh, this time, a couple things. One of them was just the way that Spielberg uses motion here. And I love that, that shot at the very beginning where the camera's just kind of floating through the water and it goes straight into the coral. And then we cut to a dolly shot that is also moving and it is scanning across this crowd and it's just a bunch of young people a bunch of happy-go-lucky kids who are hanging out on the beach the, the town name means friendship at one point uh, a character says that there hasn't been a, a shooting or a murder here in 25 years that's the mayor's excuse and so we get this we get this motion that's creepy and then this kind of lighthearted motion. And then the young woman gets into the water. And some of these scenes are almost sadistic. She's being attacked and the camera kind of watches and she moves forward and then she gets right in front of the camera and then she's pulled down. And we get the sense that in the rush of this happy-go-lucky town and happy-go-lucky life, there is something that's creeping in. And when you, when you look at it in that sense, this says something about crime and the explosion of uh, crime in many big cities across the country during this time. It says something, if I want to look at it from a religious perspective about uh, original sin or total depravity, that evil kind of lurks on the edges. Uh, at the beginning of the movie, the, the town's worst problem, they're a bunch of nine-year-olds from a karate class and they're karate chopping picket fences. <laughs> and I, lo I love that line. And nobody believes that there's a problem. Why? because they can't comprehend this type of evil here. And so it says something about evil entering our world and us grappling for it. Why are conspiracy theories so prevalent? Because people want control. People want to have an answer for everything. It's hard for them to say that evil is just out there, that it's just, we don't know why it's here. It's just out there. We, we, don't, we really don't even know how to track it down. It's just there. We want to provide answers. And that's what this film is about. Our desire for control and <laughs> how we just don't believe that something random, something evil could, could happen to us. And so this is going to make people scared to get in the water. But there's something psychological that's deeper that I think is enduring about this movie. Yeah. You know, watching this in the time of COVID, there are just... It was a much different experience than, than watching it all those years ago, not just because of the ob obvious comparisons. I mean, there much has been made recently of how, you know, everyone used to go like, oh, the mayor, like what a two dimensional villain, this mayor who's just like, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to reopen the beaches, even though people are getting eaten by sharks. No mayor would be that dense, you know, like. Why, why would he care more about the economy than the safety of his town? Well, you know, nowadays we're kind of like, well, kind of, <laughs> we kind of see that maybe that wasn't so outlandish after all. But even beyond that, the, uh, the idea that there's this, this hidden threat, you know, Spielberg, you know, may have had technical limitations that dictated why he didn't show the shark very much in the first half of the film. Be that as it may, the effect of it watching it now is that the shark remains 
unseen for pretty much the entire first half of the film, which renders the the threat invisible, not just to the audience, but also to the characters. The characters don't know when this, when or where this shark is going to strike next. And that, that anxiety of, of not knowing, of knowing there's very real threat, of knowing people who have actually been killed by this threat, uh, that's, that's kind of, that's out there. And a, a lot of, you, you get the sense, not just from the mayor, but also just from the average beachgoers that they're, they're, they're nervous, but they also aren't sure what to do about it. Like you, you can stay out of the water, but you know, not everybody, how, how long are you as a seaside town going to stay out of the water? You can't necessarily control, like you said, Wade, where the shark's going to turn up next and their best efforts to fight it head on by sending out a bunch of fishermen to catch sharks results in false leads results in some of these these fishermen themselves losing their lives and it's just that nebulousness of that threat is something that really comes through strongly on this rewatch and i think is what makes it so terrifying when the shark eventually does show up I was watching this, like I said, with my wife, and uh, at the climactic standoff on the on the orca between Chief Brody and the shark, he thinks the other two men have have either died or disappeared. So it's just him and the shark, and the shark's kind of breaking in uh, through the the sides. It's getting up on the rear of the boat, and my wife, while watching it, said, "It's everywhere," and that's really <laughs> what it feels like because yeah. we've been conditioned for so long. Uh, the shark being an unseen menace and then all of a sudden it's in our face and that just makes it that much more tense because all of a sudden it seems like you can't get away from it at all Mm. and that's great filmmaking it it really is and the way that the film twists up our expectations everything they do doesn't work until the very end and the shark is killed kind of by luck. I I like to think that this shark is the terminator of the sea. And you could take that, you know, that speech, it can't be stopped, it can't be bargained with. There's really nothing that they can do to to get this shark to go away or to kill the shark. They're using the barrels. And I love Williams' score here. When they attach the yellow barrels to the shark, it goes from kind of dark and scary until it's like almost triumphant. Like, wow, look at this. Like we can see where the shark is by following the barrel. Like they're, they're doing it. They're capturing this. And it just, it never works. And then they get to the point where Dreyfus's character, he's going to go into the cage. And we're thinking, okay, this is how they kill the shark. And the needle with the poison falls. Okay, he's going to pick it up. No, he can't. And every single thing falls apart until, by random chance, uh, he's able to to blow up the shark in a great shot, right? And this evil kind of comes out of nowhere and then almost disappears out of nowhere, which is kind of wild. And, you know, going back to the beginning of the movie, Spielberg, he, he's kind of a... 
a prude director in a way. Uh, he's very reserved when it comes to sexuality. I'm not saying that's a bad thing at all. Uh, that would be me if I were making movies. Uh, but you get these characters at the very beginning, and they're running towards the beach, and he, he, he in a way, kind of highlights uh, their bodies. They're, they're going to jump in the water. And then later when the young woman's body is found on the beach, there's a shot of, the, of just all the crabs crawling all over her. And, and we see how evil is kind of decimated uh, some vitality, if, if that makes sense. And that's really kind of the, the point of the film. Also, uh, to Kevin, I wanted to... Uh, remind listeners, you know, if we're talking about evil and we're talking about a shark attack and this and, you know, shark being everywhere, this movie is really funny. It's, it, it is, it is hilarious. And you mentioned the scene where all of the fishermen come to hunt the, the shark. That's hilarious. They're all, they're all trying to pile in on these boats and it's a, it's a really funny movie. And Spielberg finds a, this fantastic balance between humor and horror and it, it works like gangbusters. Yeah, the the uh, one one of my favorite scenes is, you know, there everyone kind of talks about that famous uh, story that Quint tells about the the USS yeah, yeah, yeah. Indianapolis, um, where you know uh, he and his buddies go into the water and the sharks kind of pick them off one by one. That's very, um, you know, it's a very spellbinding scene. Like it's it's very it just sucks you in and you really it's like listening to a scary campfire story it's great but watching this this time what i really enjoyed was the part just before that where hooper and quint kind of get into this contest where they're showing off the various scars they got from dangerous sea creatures so you know like quint shows his forearm and hooper pulls up his pant leg and then they like unbutton their shirts together and it's just it's it's really funny because it's just there, there's something about the performances and the writing that just essentially they're they're almost like like boys you know there's this boyishness to their delight in sort of swapping quote-unquote war stories that is just it's a great foil to the later story about the USS Indianapolis that kind of uh, serves so well to throw the darkness of that into sharp relief. And I think that's something that Spielberg really excels at is using the light and dark moments of his films to both complement each other and also to to really uh, underline each other, to, to make the contrast greater and thus each individual moment kind of becomes more poignant. And Spielberg is just he's such a witty director and that that was what I was really reminded of watching this film is there's that shot when Brody Hooper and Quint first set off from the harbor and so the orca is steaming out to sea <laughs> and Spielberg shoots that yeah. through the window of Quint's shop through like this this uh set of shark jaws that Quint has mounted on the window and Spielberg's camera sort of zooms through those shark jaws and frames the boats just in the midst of that mouth and it's maybe a little bit on the nose but it's also just it's it's funny it's just a nice little grace note that Spielberg throws in at, to amuse and entertain the audience and there's something to be said for that especially since we just got finished talking about how John Stewart's irresistible kind of doesn't do that and you miss it you miss that 
visual wit. And when you watch a filmmaker who's just so firmly in control of all the elements of his film in that way, it's just such a pleasure. And the, the compositions, the editing, their dynamic, they add humor, they add meaning, they add intensity, they add thematic elements to this film. And when I, when I think about a director, you think of someone who is of course, directing. There is this this entire team in front of him. There is this story with all the elements in front of them. And for such a young director, Spielberg is 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 a master at managing everything. And at one point, I was just kind of in awe of just the physical elements being executed in these action sequences, right? So this is this is action, but there's also some adventure here. And when we see a lot of action, you know, we've got cars, explosions, we've got, you know, shooting and guns. But here we have barrels, we have sharks, or a shark, we have water, we have waves, we have rope, we have guns being shot. There's all these kind of elements that are rushing in and around these action sequences. And he finds a way to put it together. He finds a way to to manage, to direct all of that. And it just kind of blows my mind to think about the diagrams that went into putting these scenes uh, together and laying them out and editing them out. And and then too, we, we talk about John Williams' score, which is brilliant, but what stood out to me on this rewatch is the silence. There are times when the film cuts out the score and all we get is water kind of lapping up on the boat. We know something's coming and we're just kind of waiting for it. It's the, the calm before the storm or the calm uh, before the attack. So all of these kind of elements, they are firmly and completely under his control. And he has great individuals working for him. He, he has Robert Shaw. I mean, he, he's fantastic in this movie. Richard Dreyfuss is, is funny in this movie. Uh, you talk about Brody's character. He's got John Williams, all of these individuals, and he knows where to put all those pieces. And he finds a way to pull this off. And it really is kind of uh, just a wonder to see him do that. And there are very few action films that are able to handle all of this going on at one time uh, and to just make it so riveting and, and also meaningful. It's, it's, uh, it's fantastic. I, and one thing that I, I really appreciated about this time was that Spielberg really doesn't explain a whole lot. Or, or rather, I guess he doesn't underline the exposition all that much. I mean, there are scenes, of course, of, you know, like Hooper talking about, you know, sharks can do this and, you know, uh, sharks, you know, it, it's likely the shark does that. And um, there are scenes of the character speculating about what the shark is going to do, to do next and why they're going to take the actions they do to counteract that threat. That's kind of all present in the screenplay. But Spielberg kind of almost directs around that exposition. There's so much of the exposition that happens in the midst of a large crowd scene. So there's kind of people talking over each other and there's this cacophony of voices. Um, and Spielberg still gets the point across about what the characters are doing and why, but he really trusts his audience to kind of be able to follow along just uh, by 
watching by keeping up with the visuals and watching what's happening on screen rather than listening for a character explaining everything to them. And that's uh, something that is, I don't know if it's necessarily rarer today than it was back then, but it's definitely something that when you watch a masterpiece of entertainment filmmaking like Jaws, you really appreciate a director who who will trust his audience enough to, to follow along and trust in his own powers enough to communicate to them uh, so that they can follow the action without getting everything bogged down. And that, I think, as a result, makes Jaws, even though it's like, it's two hours, it's a full two hours, but it feels so much shorter, so fleet, because Spielberg just never really stops or halts just to have characters catch the audience up. He just kind of moves forward and and trusts you to keep up with him, and uh, it, it works. Yes, and too, just thinking about how often Brody's family is involved in this picture, it, I wouldn't say that he gives them a ton of time. He gives them some great scenes, but he finds a way to just tell us so much about Brody's character in, in just simple moments. I really love the moment where his, the scene where his son is at the dinner table with him and they're just making, they're just making funny faces. Yes, It just, it says so much about their relationship and you're truly rooting for this character. And even, even someone like Shaw, who is crazy, you, you kind of like him. And part of that is the backstory with the USS Indianapolis and the trauma that he's gone through. And and when you hear about that, you think back to all of the all of the uh, shark skeletons hanging in his his barn building. And you feel sorry for the guy even though he's kind of nuts. <laughs> and it's just those little touches that uh, really bring us around uh, to these characters, and it, it just says so much. And also, too, uh, a, a, a shot that I really love. I'm just kind of going through things that I like. I, I like when they get on the kind of the, the boat ferry at the beginning of the movie, and, and Brody is going to go shut down some of the beaches. And the mayor and some bigwigs from the town, uh, as the boat's moving, they hop on with their car and they basically corner him and it's this long shot and once again it's the it's the long spielberg shot that you don't really realize as long until you're really paying attention and it kind of they all kind of scoot closer until it's just brody and the mayor kind of right there on the screen and it says so much about the pressure they're putting on him and the difficult choice that he has and he goes against what he thinks is right and we feel for him and then when the slain boy's mother approaches Brody later and criticizes him, we feel sorry for Brody and we realize he's trying to make the, the best decision, but we're also, we feel that sadness and we feel how he is compelled to try to fix this problem. I mean, just those small touches are, are really fantastic. Yeah. And there, that confrontation concludes with, you know, the, the, the grieving mother, you know, she, she slaps him and tells him off and then she walks away and the mayor, you know, tries to, to comfort Brody. He's tells him like, you know, that's, that's not true. What she said, she's, she's grieving, but that's not true. And Brody stops him. He says, no, she's right. 
and he walks off. And I think it's directly after that scene that we get that wonderful scene with Brody and his son just sitting at the table and his son is just sort of copying everything that Brody does. And I think that that's, in, in some ways, that's almost kind of the linchpin section of the film because it gives us something that makes this more than just your average uh, creature feature or, or you know monster thriller. It's it's showing that Brody, he's he's not just fighting a shark because that's what the screenplays make him do. Like the this character, he does what he does for a very good reason. He feels uh, driven not just um, by a a sense of duty, but because he he really feels like he, he has an, he has an obligation to protect others, not just the. Uh, the citizens under his care, but also his own family. He's he's there's something larger that he exists for and that he's working for beyond just killing a shark. And I think that's why this movie about killing a shark has st- has stood the test of time because it's not really about just that. No, that is well said. And I'll I'll add this last thing. Even though Jaws is turning forty five years old. It doesn't look a day over twenty five. <laughs> it is, it is relevant. <laughs> looks today. good for its age. It looks great for its age, listeners. That's our review of Jaws. We'd love to hear your thoughts about this film. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the first time you saw it. How did you feel? I like I mentioned, I've seen this movie many times, but there's still this feeling of oh, like go, like these characters find safety somehow. There's just this tension that I feel every time I watch the movie. Listeners, we would love to hear your thoughts about that. Let us know. Just tweet us at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod. You can also email us, seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. Once again, that's seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. This is the end of the show. And at this point, we often recommend something from the world of television and or film to our listeners. Kevin, what would you like to recommend to us today? Well, I was pretty down on the political satire of Steve Carell and Jon Stewart earlier in the show, so it's only fair that if I am going to criticize, I should point toward a movie of political satire, a comedy that does that I think does it so much better, and I'm going to reach all the way back to 1933's Duck Soup, directed by Leo McCary, but more importantly, starring the Marx Brothers, the, the great ones themselves. This is a movie, I, I feel like it's, it tends to be, at least in the popular consciousness, remembered mostly as a Marx Brothers vehicle. So there's kind of like vaudevillian humor, there's Groucho's inimitable one-liners. Those are all in this film. But it's also a really trenchant piece of anti-war satire. The, the main plot of this country, Fredonia, going to war is kind of celebrated in this giant dance number at the very end where uh, the the characters are are singing, you know, happily about going to war and it is just as an effect as effective a skewering of jingoism and just sort of uh, blind war making than as any other film I can think of. Uh, it's also helpful that it is just an absolute riot from start to finish. I saw this film for the first time in one of uh, Chicago's Films in the Park series where they kind of like have this giant 
projector and it's almost oh, like a cool. drive-in screen but you just sit in the park and you watch it with a whole bunch of other people i was you know in with a packed crowd they were trying to go for the world record of number of people in one place wearing those groucho glasses like the, the eyeglasses <laughs> with full rubber noses um so everybody was wearing like their groucho glasses and you know surrounded by strangers and just all of us busting a gut over how funny the Marx Brothers were even 80 years after the movie came out. So that's a great movie. Yeah, I, I have not seen it, uh, sadly, but that sounds like a, a, great, it was a great recommendation. It sounds like a great uh, experience watching it with, with all those fans. So I'm definitely going to check it out. Uh, Kevin, I have a, a little bit, uh, I guess it's a unique recommendation, a little bit different recommendation this week. So I had a chance to participate in the 2020 Arts and Faith Top 100 Spiritually Significant Films list. This is something that's done every 10 years by a group of just thoughtful, charismatic, and uh, talented individuals. So it was really it was just an honor to be a part of the voting process. And we put together a list. I say we, all of us kind of combined, put together a list of really a hundred great films. And it was chosen throughout this process. Each director uh, only gets one film on the list. So Spielberg's on, but he's, he's on for Schindler's List. Uh, I, I really do appreciate all the films that made it. And I nominated... 25 films, each of us were allowed to do that. And one of the films that I nominated was, of course, Jonathan Demme's uh, Stop Making Sense. And I was really excited that it made number uh, 63 on that list. And I actually had a chance to do the write-up, a short write-up about the film for the list. So I would encourage our listeners to check that out. You can go to artsandfaith.com. There are some links to the message board, and you can kind of get to the list from there. It's the spiritually significant films list. Uh, you're going to go through, find some great descriptions. There, I'm Actually, I want to recommend a film next week, but I watched a film from the list for the very first time a few days ago. And I went to the description and read it. I was like, oh, that's, that's amazing. I'm just so glad I have this resource. So it's there. If you've seen films, you can read some of those descriptions. And if there are films that you haven't seen from the list, I would encourage you to check all of those out. There are some that I, I still need to check out. But it's a, yeah, it's a great list. So hop on over to artsandfaith.com and find the 2020 version of the spiritually significant films list. And I think uh, it's going to be fun kind of going through that for our listeners. Yeah, I'll second that recommendation. It's a good list. Well, listeners, that is our show today. We want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by ChristandPopCulture.com. Make sure to rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Jonathan Claussen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Beard and my co-host is Kevin McClendon. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. We'll see you later. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz used under Creative Commons License 3.0.